Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Yes, yes, okay. Hello and welcome to chapter 15 of the Corona Diaries and this is kind of take two because we we started going about 10 minutes ago and unfortunately my recording for whatever reason froze so we're now having a go at this for the second time and I'd, I'd started by congratulating um, 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 H on the fact that we were at chapter 15 and we were nearly 69 pages into diary readings. Uh, which was, we, we, you know, it's quite impressive. We're doing quite well. We, I'm saying it again, we're doing quite well. Uh, whereas you rightly pointed out, it's actually you, isn't it, that's reading it. Um, <laughs> well, I did point that out. You, you For did. whatever reason, you, you the, the controversy at the moment stopped your recorder from working. It did, it did. Either, was... that, or, either that or you just pressed pause out of indignation. <laughs> yes, yes, I indignantly <laughs> paused. Um, but then you just said that you don't remember much about what you're reading. <laughs> well, not, you know, not, 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 not about 80% of it, I reckon, about you know, maybe even 90%, um, is, is, is so shrouded now in the mist of my, my unreliable memory. It was a long time ago, it was. What, 91, what was that? Was it almost exactly 30 years ago? Yeah. So remembering the day-to-day occurrences, the minute of life um, 30 years earlier, I'm quite quite happy that I, I, wrote, I wrote all this stuff down. Because mm. It's there now and otherwise it would have gone, you know, it would have faded away completely. I remember when my, um, when my old grand snuffed it, you know, I... I sort of kicked myself later, you know, obviously I grieved for her a bit. and But then later on I thought, oh, oh, what a shame I hadn't sat her down at some point with a dictaphone or something and trawled her memories um, because that's all gone now and I'll never know it. Um, and there, there would have been so much about her life and uh, that I'd have known now, you know, that I've no idea about. And, and of course, her being my grand... Her life is part of my my family tree and my legacy, and I probably would have picked up a few interests in it. I mean, she was barking mad, even as a girl. Uh, so I, I can only imagine what she got up to over the years. I mean, I know she used to dress up as a man and go to the pub and all of that. Um, so the, just having those little bits of icing on her cake are, are, are funny enough. But to have known everything she'd sort of done as she'd grown up would have been a fascinating window into another age and, um, you know, into into her life and might explain some of my own <laughs> interesting foibles. Um, so, yeah, it's good to have written a diary. The th- he said, he said, skillfully avoiding 
any reference to girls with no knickers. Yes, and and I was just about to say um, that you inserting your gram into that little <laughs> section has meant that I can't actually follow up on where we'd arrived at before because it would seem really uncouth. So yes. we'd, we'd have to leave that for a different day. We're I will remember, though. Just I will leave remember. Leave that hanging, and suffice to say, there have been the odd occasions in my rock and roll life where girls not wearing pants have crossed my, what's the word? <laughs> I'm not quite sure if there is they've a word. Impen- they've impinged upon my consciousness. Yes, you had a Tom Jones moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the only way I can think of, of putting it. It's not unusual, Ant. Right. Well, it, is, it has been for me, but um, <laughs> that's... <laughs> that's that's probably probably better. Um, I bought we, that single. It's not unusual. Da, did you? Da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah. That was that was one of the first singles I ever had. You know, in amongst "She Loves You" and "Not Fade Away" by the Stones. I had, right. It's not unusual by Tom Jones. All right. Hmm. Anyway, right, thank, thank, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> So the hangover from last week, there's a few bits of hangover from last week, but the one that we said, you said to me, don't forget to ask me about, was a chap called Jonathan Hodge. <laughs> and um, was Jonathan the, the Benelin drinker? Oh, I, I meant to Google the name of the uh, the gangster. John. Oh, man. Um, maybe we should pause while I just Google the name of the gangster. We could, we could, because I don't do think that. I could, I could, oh, you could... Do you know, I could do it in the background while you... I could do it in the back. Well, just just Google um, Ron, Ron, Ronald Biggs kidnapping. Oh, yeah, that was where we were at. Hang on, hang on there. Yeah. Uh, yeah sorry, if, if you hear a few clicks, John. Um, it's me typing Ronald. Problem is I have to talk and type at the same time. Ronald Biggs right. kidnapping. John something. Right, okay. Which which one of the papers shall I go to? I'll go to the New York Times. Uh do do John Miller. John Miller, that was him. That was him. Okay. Hmm. Well that's all I needed. That was his, his name. I just could not remember quite. John Miller. There we are. So this comes back to Jonathan Hodge, and and he was the guy that managed you. He was my manager. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, when 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 Harlow came down to London, um, our our kind of working men's club pop, pop group um, came down to London, um, and the and the van, you know, and lost all the equipment when the van broke down and all of that. Um, Jonathan Hodge was our manager. And Jonathan was a jingles writer um, and he wrote some really famous jingles and he, he was successful. I'd lo- made loads of money out of it. Um, and he wrote, a Mars a day helps you work, rest and play. And he wrote, lips smacking thirst, quenching ace, tasting good, buzzing, motivating, having a minute Pepsi. So any one of a certain age will remember seeing those regularly on the telly when they were kids and Jonathan wrote all of those. And he was a right character. He had. He was like um, a character from Scooby Doo. He had. Uh, he had a similar body shape to Shaggy, you know, with the really, really thin legs, 
um, a, a tiny little sort of pot belly, you know, thin thin as a rake apart from a little pot belly that stuck out. And then he had sort of Richard II hair with, you know, long ringlets that came down to almost his waist. And um, and he wore, and I think he wore glasses. And he was just sort of generally nuts. Um, and we referred last week, didn't we, to the, um, he, would, he would take two bottles of banalin and a bottle of champagne into the studio at 11 at night and he would work through the night drinking banalin and champagne and the, that would be his inspiration. And he would come out in the morning with, um, with a jingle and that's how he used to work. And really clear sinuses. And there's a pond in um, there's a pond in Hampstead in the middle of the road. If you've ever driven through Hampstead, uh, on the top road there, there's a there's a pond that you drive round. And Jonathan drove into that in his convertible Mercedes Sports, and uh, was sat in the middle of that, you know, with the with the water seeping in, um, and then got out and just left it there. And I think somebody else had to come and get it later on um he used to he used to quite often drive to places in his convertible mark and then then either forget where he put the car or or be in such a state that he couldn't even climb into it to drive it and it would you know other people he had people who worked for him who would sort of tidy up after him uh, by by finding wherever he left his car and getting it home or drying it out and getting it home anyway um he married, uh, now what was her name? I have to Google this as well. I think she was Debbie, Debbie Raymond. And she was the daughter of Paul Raymond, the sort of porn, porn king in Soho who owned the Raymond Review Bar, which had been the old windmill theatre. In fact, I think it still was the old windmill theatre in Soho. Um and so Paul Raymond was was connected to some quite heavy people. And as a wedding present to Jonathan and Debbie, he gave them the penthouse suite on the top floor of the Barbican in London, and that's where Jonathan used to live. And he invited me to a party there that he had once. And I remember sitting outside on the top of the Barbican in the summer chatting to Mickey Dolenz, the, the drummer from the Monkeys. The Monkeys. It was also there. Um, and time passed. I'm, I mean, to be fair to Debbie, it can't have been easy being married to Jonathan because he was loopy. Uh, and, you know, he was a bit... He was a bit... bit <laughs> yeah, he was loopy. And he, he, I wouldn't have wanted to be married to him, put it that way. But but over time, I think they must have drifted apart a little bit. And she had an affair with David Wilkie, the uh, the gold medal swimming swimmer, uh, swimmer mm. right? He, he won a gold medal in the Olympics. And for whatever reason, she took up with him, I had a scene with him, and Jonathan found out about it. And kicked her out. And they split up. Um, so there's Jonathan living in his, on the top floor of the Barbican. Debbie's now left and is living with an Olympic swimmer. 
The next thing, there's a knock on the door one day. Jonathan opens it and there's these heavies saying, hello, we, we're here, we represent Mr. Raymond and it's time you left. And he said, what do you mean? This, 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 is, my, this is my apartment. They said, oh, no, it isn't. I think you'll find if you check the deeds, they were never transferred to you. They're still in Mr. Raymond's name. So um, he said, well, I'm not going. Get lost. And they said, well, if you don't go, you may be found at the bottom of the Thames, not to put too fine a point on it. So whereas most sensible and sane people would have started packing (laughs) (laughs) and looking for another place to live, Jonathan decided, I'm not having this. I'm going to hire my own heavies. So he rented his own heavies and I was in the pub one night with Jonathan and and two other guys and one of them was John Miller who was um, a mercenary, a stroke sort of murderer for hire, um, who, 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 who was then later, he became famous for having kidnapped Ronnie Biggs. Um, he... Him and some accomplices went to Rio, where Biggs was living at the time, and kidnapped him and sailed, sailed him away on a boat, tied up, um, with, in the hope of claiming a, um, you know, a load of money from the British government to bring him back to, to, to England, uh, a ransom. And the, the, the government refused to pay a ransom. So John Miller sailed him back to Rio and let him go again. Um, anyway, I was in the pub with him and Jonathan and this other bloke was this really big Italian guy who was, I mean, if you, if, if, if you wanted an Italian mafia mobster in a movie, you know, you would have cast this guy. He was the archetype of an Italian mob guy. Uh, it was also very nice, and I and I, I spent I spent the evening in the pub with those two, so that was my brush with proper gangsterism. I'm I'm going to have um, to ask, how did it end up for Jonathan with the with the apartment? They, I mean, they used to leave packages in his car and stuff. I mean, it was it got really heavy, um, but I think he did leave in the end. But by then. Um, my relationship with Jonathan had kind of drifted apart because he, he managed us for a little while, but then that didn't really work out, in, in, you know, in business terms. Um, although he did help us out. He, he was a nice guy. He was just, you know, a bit loopy. I wonder if he's still around. Mm. He probably is. If he's, you know, if he's laid off the Benelin a bit, he's probably still around. Mm. So that was Jonathan and John Miller and Ronnie Biggs. You might be listening. Yeah, I well, if he is. Hello, Jonathan. Yeah. Get in Thanks touch. Thanks for the help back then. Yeah. It sounds like you've had an interesting life, Jonathan, actually. In fact, if you want to do a podcast about it, give us a give us a, give us a shout. I'm uh, I'm free on, I'm, I'm free on Tuesdays. <laughs> that 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 would be an interesting podcast because I I can't imagine the stories Jonathan's got. I mean, it would make me sound like a bank clerk. <laughs> I just don't. I, it's that whole thing of David Wilkie being involved, who seemed like he seemed like you know cleaner than clean when he won when he won his medal. He was the uh, 
kind of stunned well, up. He, you know, he, he had a bit of a scene with Debbie Raymond. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he didn't realise who her father was either. I suppose if you threatened to throw David Wilkie in the Thames, he'd probably not be too phased by that. <laughs> no, no problem at all. I've got my drunk. I've got my drugs on anyway. I'll just swim, I'll, I'll just swim across. I just swim yeah. across. Yeah. I'm not I'm not worried I, about that. Like sod it, I'll turn left and go to Gravesend. Could do with the exercise. <laughs> turn round at the Thames barrier. Uh, <laughs> pop back. Right. Um uh, well, I'm pleased we've we've nailed that. Um, that was Jonathan Hodge. Jonathan, yeah, yeah. And did you say? Did you just slip in there that he managed Marillion as well, or was it? No, 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 no he no. managed Harlow, right? Uh, and wrote jingles. And wrote no, jingles. He, he got nothing to do with Marillion. And he had nothing to do with how we live then. No, no, that was years and years and years before that. Right. right okay. Fine, fine, right. Well, we'll pick up on that on a, on a different yeah. day. Um, Europeans and how we live are managed by a guy called Mark Thompson. Right, okay. He didn't have any brushes with any kind of gangster types or...? I don't think so, although he did go through a, a paranoid period where he thought, he, you know, he went through a house is surrounded by a helicopter right. period as well, right. um, around about the time we were splitting up. Right. Um, he was, yeah, Mark was quite a character. But, it, so, I mean, in the time I knew him, he, he didn't do anything particularly outrageous or colourful. But I think he now runs um, a company called Funky Junk. That um, I know Funky Junk. They sell studio equipment. You prob- then you mm. probably have met Mark Thompson. I have, I have indeed. I do know Mark. So we we were managed by Europeans were managed by Mark Thompson the whole time we were with A and M, and then how we live he managed how we live as well. Right. So we he remained our manager on and off up until um, that that finally crashed and I ended up joining Marillion. Yeah. That was the point at w- where I parted company with Mark. And if Mark's listening, thank you very much, Mark, for all the help. I know it damn nearly killed you, um, and it was much appreciated. Um, there's one of our seven degrees of separation moments, then, because that would be one of the <laughs> yeah. one of the points where we'd collide if we didn't know each other already. But then, yeah, yeah. right, okay, um, yeah, you and me and Ronnie Biggs, and David yeah. Wilkie, and yeah. Neil Armstrong, and it's mad, isn't it? It's, it that's quite when you Don- put it like that. It's quite a good list, actually. Donald Campbell, yeah. Quite a nice list. My series just switched on again. I don't know what it mm. thinks it was listening to, but okay. Um, so what we thought we'd do today is ask a couple of for those of you who um, don't support the show on Patreon. Uh, one of the things that we do for the people who do support the show on Patreon is we do some extra content through the course of the month, and we put out a couple of extra things um, just to try and raise a smile and keep people entertained and. Um, one of them is called the Odds and Sodcast, um, which uh, contains extra diary um, that uh, that H has written, uh, you know, post books. And the other thing is called the Guestbook Q and A. And what we do there is we take questions that are on the SteveHogarth.com website on the Guestbook on the website, and I and I put one or two to Steve, and then we end up going off in a totally different direction and ending up. 
somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. Uh, and I've got a couple of questions um, that are floating around from from the guest book. So I thought today we'd ask a couple of those, just so you kind of get a feel for what that extra bit of content is like. And if you feel like subscribing and supporting the show, this is the kind of stuff that you you get. Um, so. Um, the first one I was going to ask you, which was a question that came from a guy called Roland, uh, it's S-O-L-L-A-R-S. So I suppose it's Solars, if it was dollars. So I suppose Solars, but it might be Solars, uh, who lives in Malta. Um, and Ro- Roland has asked, <clears throat> can you talk about when you met Peter Gabriel and Red Rain? Yes. Um, well, how we live went off to Crescent Studios in Bath and made an album um, called Dry Land. Um, And it was produced by a guy called David Lord, who was from Bath and owned Crescent Studios. And David had produced um, the the one with the Rhythm of the Heat on it and Wallflower. Um, What else is on there? San Jacinto. That's beautiful. Um, that one, um, he'd produced that album and so obviously knew Peter. We, we were working in Crescent Studios with David making our album and we were pretty desperately short of equipment, um, because we were skinned and, uh, whenever we needed to borrow anything, you know, like a four by 12 speaker cabinet or some effects pedals or um, particularly um, AMS Reverbs. Um, there's a company called AMS that made great studio reverbs and delays, uh, and they were all the rage back in the '80s. I think that you know they're still they're still a kind of go-to item now. Um, and I think at some point Peter became involved with AMS. He might even be one of the directors or owners of AMS now. Um, so we we used to borrow things from him. David used to phone him and say, "Can we borrow a you know chorus pedal? And can we well? Can we hire a chorus pedal? Can we hire this? Can we hire that? We weren't borrowing them; we were hiring them, or so we thought. Um, and so we hired all this stuff from Peter Gabriel while we were making our record, and then at the end of the process, we never received an invoice from him. So then we realised we thought we were hiring it." but we were borrowing it and he wasn't charging us for it, which which tells you a lot about the kind of person he is. He's just a very groovy bloke. Um, and he had an assistant called David Stahlbaumer, an American guy, who used to turn up in a little van with gear and, you know, load it into our studio whenever David had borrowed anything from Peter. Um so we were in this little bubble in Bath where where Peter Gabriel was a friend of a friend and XTC were a friend of a friend as well because David Lord had produced the Big Express album for XTC. So I was all starstruck because suddenly, you know, I kind of almost knew XTC and I kind of almost knew Peter Gabriel. And then we we made an uh, we made a song called Games in Germany, which is on the Dryland album, where David said, "Why don't we put the drums on last?" Because I'd got this little rhythm box, and I thought, "Well, that's a bit 
weird to put the drums on last, but he said it can work quite well. Um, so we recorded games in Germany with a little tick box. And then right at the end, after we got all the overdubs on and everything, we brought in a drummer, and the drummer was Manny Elias from Tears for Fears. Um, so then I got to know Tears for Fears a bit as well, you know, and I, I, I ended up meeting Kurt and Roland. One day, um, David Stolbarmer was too busy to come over and we had to take some gear back to Peter. So I said to Dave, well, I can I can run it over there. And so I, I drove with these, I think it was an emulator keyboard we'd borrowed off them, thought we were hiring but had borrowed. And I took all this gear back to his house, which was called Ashcombe House in Lower Swainswick, um, which was where he used to live. And he had a barn at the back back of the house, which which he'd converted into a studio. This was before Real World. And he recorded the Sow album in that barn. And, of course, it was to be the biggest album of his career, although he didn't know it, nobody else did. And so I took all his gear over in, in the car and I, put, I pull into this this driveway, this big house, and, and David had said, oh, drive around the back because that's where the studio is and there'll be someone there to help you in with it. So I drove around the back and sure enough, Peter G came out and, oh, he's got that voice, hasn't he? Sort of, sort of that uh, voice all the time. Oh, hi, how are you doing? How's it going? And I'm, like, I'm trying to resist the kind of we're not worthy fall up touching bowing thing all the time just oh this is an ordinary person ordinary person and i'm an ordinary person so um i just you know we're really grateful that that, that for, for for all the equipment where would you like this oh t- take it take it in there take it in the control room so so i think he got on one end of this emulator i got in the other and we stuck it in the control room and i said oh how's it going and he went, oh, well, fine, we, um, we've just finished a mix, actually. Would you like to hear it? I went, well, yeah, yeah, that'd be lovely. <laughs> so uh, there was only the two of us and, and you know, he, pre- he, he pressed the big triangle button for go and um, we, we, we stood at the SSL desk in his control room. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's Stuart Copeland. If ever I heard a high hat, says that Stuart Copeland. Went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, and he played me Red Rain, um, and um, that was really how I got to hear Red Rain before anybody else in the world, apart from the people who physically worked on it, um, which was a great privilege. And about six months later, his album had come out. We were back in Crescent again doing a 12-inch remix. We'd borrowed some more stuff and I took some AMSs around there um, and saw him again. And he invited me in for breakfast. And I wasn't hungry but, but I had a cup of tea and we sat at the kitchen table and he had a bit of soup. And uh, he was telling me how Joni Mitchell had just left. She'd been in, oh, she just left this morning. Oh, crap. You're kidding. Yeah, about 10 minutes ago. Um, 
I said, oh, I'm a very big fan of Joni Mitchell. He said, oh, yeah, so am I. I'm a genius, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and we had a lovely chat. And I said, well, you're in the charts, Peter. Sledgehammer had just gone in at about number 19 or something. Said, yeah, yeah, it'll probably drop out next week. You know, he'd no idea. He'd got a hit on his hands. Um, and, of course, that became this huge hit. And so became this sort of iconic album, really. Um, and I, I was sat having a cup of tea with him, you know, just after it was out, before it all really went completely mega for him. And he he didn't see it coming, you know. Mm-hmm. He, he was he was kind of expecting it all to just fall apart again. Um, but he was a lovely. He's a lovely person. Mm. He's a really lovely person. Mm. There's a, a I, I watched a documentary on the making of that album, and it's when you mentioned about you know the, the barn and everything. And there's a lot of there's a lot of shots, a lot of footage from around the time uh, and of and of that house and of that barn and everything. And it is quite quite. It's a really interesting documentary. Um, yeah, is that uh, the one where Daniel Lanoir has to lock him in to yeah. make him finish the words? Yeah, because he. They spent the whole album, you know, and Peter hadn't written any lyrics or hadn't finished them, and kept not getting round to it. Yeah, the, it's I I I stumbled upon it. I don't know if it's one of those things. You know, where you you, you kind of jump on Netflix or you jump on the iPlayer and you spend and you spend and you think, oh, I'll just watch something for an hour. I've got an hour, and then actually all you do is search around for an hour and don't actually watch anything. But you actually then end up finding something in the last five minutes and think, oh, I'll watch that at some point. And I watched it. I thought it was, it was really, really good. But what you just said about they didn't see it coming, it, 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 you know, when you look back at the footage, it kind of felt like that. The, you know, they didn't, they didn't have that moment of, wow, this is, no, we, it's magic. We've got it. it, 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 it you know, um, yeah. but incredible album. Absolutely it incredible. Is. Album. It is. Uh, yeah. I mean, the first time I heard Sledgehammer, I just thought, well, he's completely ripped off Wait Till the Midnight Hour. Mm. You know, I'm going to wait till the midnight hour. Mm. That's it. You know, it's Wait Till the Midnight Hour. I don't know if he ever got sued for that, but he definitely nicked it. I don't remember hearing <laughs> he'd been sued for it. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't look like he's, you know, he's, he's struggling money-wise, so I, I'm, I'm sure it's not all been... Lifted from him. So is that? Yeah. Did that have any bearing on using real world then? Um, did, or not that- really. I, I went to Real World with Manny with Manny Elias back back then in um, just after it had been finished. I think. I think we went. Was Peter there then? I might. We might have said hello then. Um, so I'd had stuck my nose around Real World. You know, not long after it was finished. And then um, Marillion's relationship with Real World really just came out of the fact that we we were looking for um, a residential place where we could record and, and live and, you know, get out from under the wife's feet for a bit and, and be together and be a gang again because we've got our own studio. The problem with having your own studio is you take it for granted and you go there every day and it starts to feel like going to the office. Mm. Um, and because you go there every day and drive home at night, you can't have a glass of wine or a few few drinks or 
take any Class A drugs, not that we ever do, um, because um, you've got to drive home at the end of it. And so the way you, we used to make records in the old days is we'd go to some opulent house in the country <laughs> and live there. I'd turn into Lord Byron for a few months um, flounce about in a big shirt with a bottle in one end and a book of poetry in the other. And, um, <laughs> or a skull full of tequila. You know the kind of thing. And, Clearly. Um, <laughs> and and we used to work like that, you know, and then we really missed it when we had our own studio and had to be sensible. And I, I said to the boys one day, it's like being in a fucking firm of accountants, this. It's not like being in a rock and roll band. Is that, did, did we go into architecture or something at some point? Because... Didn't we used to be musicians? What's going on? Um, and so in an attempt to sort of push back against becoming a firm of architects, we hired Real World and went there and lived together and became a gang again, you know, and, and had a drink in the evening and then went back into the studio and had a kind of post, post-wine, post-dinner post jam when everybody felt a bit more woozy because you get a different kind of music come out at that point because you're a little bit more carefree, mm -hmm. not necessarily better, but it's different mm -hmm. and can come in quite handy. Um, so we went there for that. We went there for, for that vibration and, and so, so now we got into the habit where we, we tend to jam and start arranging the songs at our own studio. And when we feel we've got them to a point where we're ready to, to really record them properly, um, we, we go off to real world for a few days and live together and get it all down. Peter's got amazing equipment. I mean, mm. the stuff he's got in that control room. Mike Hunter walked me around it one day and he said, you see that thing there? And I go, yeah. He said, they're 10 grand. And I go, oh, my God. And he said... You see that rack of my camps there? And say, yeah. He said, count them. And I go, well, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Well, there's 36. He said, yeah, they're 4,000 quid each. I went, what? And, you know, so he's got an absolute palace of, of equipment um, that if he was really to charge people what it was worth just to hire it for the day, He'd have to up his prices by a factor of sort of 10. Mm -hmm. But the, the fact is that uh, residential recording studios are not in high demand anymore. Peter's now moved back to London and I think he's built another little studio in London that he uses for himself, so he, he, he very rarely even uses it now. So um, we've been very fortunate to to use that space and the control room is like a a cathedral of technology is the only way I can describe it. It's, to, you know, it's really high ceiling, it's huge, feels like a cathedral, um, a cathedral that just fell out of a spaceship. So it's a beautiful place, you know, with the duck pond out mm. the window and everything. Yeah. And if you Google real world, you'll see the duck pond out the window. And it's an amazing space to work. But the the fact that we use it has... Is, it has nothing to do with 
with my meeting Peter all those years ago. It's just coincidental. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, um, we're about we're about at a diary point. Um, so thanks, Roland, for that question. And obviously, that's just it's that kind of stuff that we do on the guestbook Q and A. So if you fancy listening to more of that, um, there's a link on the show notes to the uh, to the Patreon page, and just hop over there. And I think for you know about the cost of a couple of cu- cups of coffee. Uh, you can you can get access to this uh, to this extra this extra stuff and, and as I say we do a couple of those every month and they're different from the podcast uh, and and I I think it's safe to say they're a little not looser but we um, you know it's uh, <laughs> I don't know if you could get looser than this but uh, um, maybe well a... we were before you stopped recording wasn't well we? <laughs> well yes yeah we we'll end up back at it. that was going to make we, it that'll make it we were, out, and we were out we were out of order in fact uh, we were beyond loose now you see when i said we earlier on and you said well actually i read the diary and now, and now you're saying we and i had nothing to do with any of those comments no, no, that, that that was the royal we all oh, right okay okay you're talking about yourself in the third person again aren't you Look, it's not my fault that this shit's happened to me. All right, it's not. It's nothing to do with it's me. Nothing I cannot to do be with held me. accountable. No, for things that have happened to me. No, no, not no, not at all. How can walking things, down things the street? Things that I've done, yeah. Things that I've done, yes. Things that have happened to me, no, 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 no. <laughs> I just happened to be there. No, I'm still tracking it all back to to those clogs that he used to wear around Donny. If I'm being honest, that's still my yeah. kickoff point. But, yes, things but, used to happen to me then. Yes, and I think that probably was yeah. a little bit of your own fault. If I'm, yeah, possibly, if I could be yeah. so bold. Yeah, yeah. Looking back, looking yeah. back, looking back. So um, we'll we'll jump onto diary, uh, yeah. which is I think it's going to take us through the uh, a few kind of. Holidays needing Christmas gigs around the UK, bit of a wrap up sort of end of December, um, and feeling feeling ill throughout. Feeling, feeling yeah. ill, and we might link back to Jonathan Hodge again, might we? Um, <laughs> because I think there's something coming about not knowing where you've parked cars, but we'll talk about uh, that. Mm. We'll talk about that. Um, you know, after after you've read the diary, <laughs> I'm going to read the diary now. Yes, come on, read the diary. <laughs> Here it comes. I am going to. He isn't reading it. I'm fucking reading it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, dear. Sunday, 15th of December. Home. Bristol Civic Hall. Got up and dug up last year's Christmas tree from the rockery. The cheese plant had to go. I felt like I was murdering an old and faithful friend as I chopped it up and threw it in the bin. Aforementioned Christmas tree was put in the pot and brought inside with the minimum of fuss, i.e. lots. Fifi, Diz and I dressed the tree with decorations from the loft and it was nearly time for me to go. Nip round the corner to look at a house for 180 grand and got back to discover Ray, tour manager on this leg, oh, so not bus driver, and Ian waiting. Unloaded prodigal suitcase and discovered German electric advent candles still worked. Hurrah. Back into the hot dog van and off to Bristol, still feeling iffy. 
The Bristol Civic Hall show went well. The audience were terrific and there was a real sense of occasion, thanks, no doubt, to Julia Simpson's endless plugging on GWR. Thanks, Julia. I donated yet another stage shirt to charity. I wasn't singing particularly well, but I felt a little better after the show. Managed to shake hands, sign Christmas cards, 250 of them, and still get to bed for 11.30, feeling dodgy. Bill Price's remix of Cover My Eyes was circulating at the show. I didn't have time to listen to it. It's since been rejected by our American label IRS. I probably won't hear it this side of 1992. P.S. Not sure I ever heard it. Monday, 16th of December. Bristol to Aylesbury Civic Hall. Left the unfabulous Bristol Hilton at 12.30. Steve R, Mark K and Pete T had left in cars with their nearest and dearest, so it was Ian and me who departed for Aylesbury in the hot dog van with Ray driving. Snoozed a lot until Aylesbury and then checked into the Bell Hotel on the Market Square next door to the gig. Considering we're supposed to be an Aylesbury band, I've hardly spent any time here, so I thought I'd better have a look. Went for a mooch round the town and wasn't terribly impressed by the shops. Came back and ran a much-needed bath to discover the water was black and full of gritty deposits in the bottom. We've had a new boiler, the management informed me. After a while, the landlady came up to clean the bath, but by then it was time to go. At soundcheck, my voice was still gravelly and strained and I felt really ill came back to the bell and went to bed until showtime. For me, the Aylesbury show was attrition. I sang like a dog and halfway through my flu seemed to temporarily take over. I started shaking and shivering and, according to a few witnesses, turned as white as a sheet. I must have looked bloody rough because even John Arneson was considering cancelling tomorrow and Wednesday and he's not usually known for putting compassion ahead of an earner. Fiona Travers, who's a nurse, came to my rescue once again and arranged a doctor to pop by after the show. Typically, I felt much better by the time he arrived, so he did nothing but recommend paracetamol. Seven years at college. Had a quick nightcap at the bell with Tom Bradley, ex of Rondor Music Publishing, and a lovely chap, before retiring upstairs. Finally managed a bath. Still fairly gritty. Tuesday, 17th of December, Aylesbury to Glasgow. The endurance test continues. Up at 8.45 for breakfast at the Bell and the long drive to Glasgow. I spent most of it in my usual position, horizontal on the back seat. Arrived in darkness and woke up stuck in what appeared to be a back alley. We were in a queue of traffic trying to turn left. Perhaps it was my state of health and state of mind, but I couldn't help finding Glasgow depressing. We finally arrived at the Barrowlands and made our way down narrow back stairs into the hall, which was, like last time, freezing cold. Fortunately, they had since invested in wall heaters for the dressing room area. Glasgow and Liverpool are, like it or not, sister cities in so much as I couldn't help wondering if the new heaters in the dressing room were nicked from somewhere else. They looked a bit second-hand. 
I know this sounds prejudiced, but I reckon you could swap one end of Argyle Street for one end of Lime Street without anyone noticing. The same was true of the hotel, which had the same, quote, business as usual in terminal decay, unquote, attitude, as I've only experienced here and in Liverpool. The show, although poorly attended, maybe due to the recession, was notable for the atmosphere from the crowd, who, although in diminished numbers, were every bit as vocal and welcoming as last time, and impossible to compare with the more conservative Edinburgh crowd earlier in the tour. For some reason of Marillion history stroke culture, and probably something to do with fish, the crowd occasionally chant, Giza barn, Giza barn, Giza barn, and throw bread buns at me infinitely preferable to cans of urine, which used to happen at pop festivals in the 70s, or being spat at, which was a sign of approval during the punk era. I used to go on stage in a plastic mag. My voice was finally returning to form, so spiritually I was much improved when I came off stage. Thanks, loves. Beats paracetamol. P.S. Sorry, Glasgow. Sorry, Liverpool. It was 1991, and I was fucked at the time. I've since come to love both cities dearly and always look forward to coming. I usually play Christmas solo shows in both cities, and they're magical. Right, have I crawled enough? Wednesday, 18th of December. Glasgow, Middlesbrough Civic Hall. Rose mid-morning and walked along Argyle Street looking for Christmas cards and gifts. It rained hard until I bought a brolly for £3.99, at which point it stopped. Glasgow seems very run down. Many of the shops lie empty and disused, even on this, one of its main streets. I returned to the hotel, trying to square what I'd seen with all the talk about Glasgow being a vibrant cultural centre these days. Perhaps they can talk it up till it happens. The drive to Middlesbrough was again seemingly endless, Sleep didn't really help. Whenever I woke up, outside looked much the same as when I'd gone to sleep. The high point of the journey was a lay-by snack trailer run by a sprightly woman who made us 16 bacon and egg rolls and nearly as many cups of coffee. She must be brave to stand there on her own in the middle of nowhere all day, freezing to death. These are the people whose hard work and joyful spirit make the world a better place. Middlesbrough Civic Hall is quite an interesting place, a bit Bavarian somehow. I took a shine to the Red Dragons in the rafters. The show went well, although the audience was somewhat sedate. We realised after the show that this was our first time here, so perhaps the reaction was to be expected. They were sussing us out. Afterwards at the hotel, we bought the crew a drink by way of thanks for the tour. We thought we might not get a chance after London when people tend to scatter. One of Pete T's relatives here is a hairdresser. I made an appointment for 9.30 tomorrow to get my roots done. Tuesday, 19th of December. Middlesbrough, London. Up at nine, bluffing heavily and staggered down to the hairdressers where Diane, I think, coloured my hair black for a change. Ha ha. I consumed several coffees during the process and persuaded the junior to go out in search of toast. 
got back to the hotel in time to check out at 11 for the obligatory interminable journey, this time to London. Arrived at four and checked into the Holiday Inn Swiss Cottage and left immediately for EMI to meet Bill Smith to approve artwork for America. It was all in black and white, so I'm none the wiser. Had heated discussion about the forthcoming anniversary album. I feel there shouldn't be more old Marillion songs on there than new Marillion, in case the album looks like some sort of epitaph. Steve R and Mark K disagreed, but Mark K later changed his mind and Steve R went quiet. Hmm. Pete T agrees with me and Ian seems indifferent. We're going to need another meeting. Left EMI and went to Willie Robertson's place in Fulham Road for Christmas drinks with Rondor. Willie Robertson owns a rock and roll insurance company called Robertson Taylor and is quite a character. Saw Annabelle Lamb again, who was complaining about Julia Fordham's vegan, non-smoking, no-fun touring regime. Also chatted to Mark Shaw, singer from Then Jericho, who is currently without a deal. That's show business. Later on, Willie showed up and introduced me to his lovely wife, Angie, and chums. It was an emotional reunion. He's as soft and melodramatic as I am. I chatted to Kurt Smith about Colin War, said hi to Chris Kimsey, and went down to the Goat in Boots for a half with Jack and the crew before returning to Swiss Cottage for sleep. Friday, 20th of December. London Town and Country Club. Now the Forum. Happy birthday, Sue. Up at 11 to leave at 11.30. I was delayed firstly by my bath refusing to empty and secondly by the realisation that my luggage had still not arrived from the porters who've had it since yesterday afternoon. Waited 10 minutes for my suitcase to arrive so that I could put on clean underwear. I was, therefore, only wearing a towel when I let maintenance in to empty the bath water. It must be hard being a girl. Arrived at the TNC at 12 o'clock and met up with Benedetta from Super Channel for the one and a half hour VJ slot which Mark and I were doing. This actually seemed to take all day. We had a lot of fun on camera. I announced my forthcoming marriage to Madonna, etc. It seemed funny at the time. And in the end, Benedetta stayed for Christmas dinner and I invited her onto the stage for soundcheck. She asked me if I'd be interested in doing some VJing in the new year. I said, sure. I bet they don't call, though. They didn't. Back to Swiss Cottage to meet a nurse who arrived to babysit Niall. Diz arrived just as I was leaving for the show, saying she'd parked the car up the Finchley Road and got a cab. She always gets lost in London. She's improved a little since the 80s when she used to go everywhere via St Paul's Cathedral. Not good if you're coming from Windsor. So, this is the stuff which always accompanies London shows. Guest list hassles, parking fines and towaways, interviews, domestic chaos and of course extra nervous tension for the show itself which cranks up the stress of all the above and in turn stresses everyone else out too. Ian has said he wouldn't care if he never played another Aylesbury or London show again and I kind of know what he means. The show, however went really well. 
the crowd was in great form and I sang not too badly. Afterwards, we reserved the bar upstairs for after-show drinks. Doris from the Violet Hour announced her departure from the band after their set, so I suppose that's the end of them. I guess we broke them. Shame. Said hello to Steve Tennant from IRS, who was complimentary and seemed very vibed up about next year. He said I should have lunch with Miles. That's Miles Copeland, owner of IRS and legendary manager of the police and Sting. I also said hi to Chris Neal, producer Holidays in Eden and a list of stars, Nick Eade, lead singer of Cutting Crew, Alison from EMI Press and John Helmer, our occasional co-lyricist and wordsmith. John Helper, I call him. Left the town and country around one o'clock, clutching a black bin liner full of washing and trying to hold on to several coat hangers full of clothes. An embarrassing 15 minutes was spent waiting outside the venue for a minicab. Ain't that the lead singer of Marillion there, snigger? Finally got a cab and began looking for our car. Please take us to Finchley Road. What number, mate? It's two miles long. Uh, just drive up and down, please. Somehow, bear in mind, I'd sung for well over two hours and stood in a bar being hustled for a further two. Exhaustion remained at bay for long enough to find the car, drive to the Holiday Inn, pay the babysitter, check out, donate my room to displaced German girls Sandra and Britta, load the car... I couldn't get my suitcase to fit. Drive home to Windsor, drive the other babysitter home and drive home again. Saturday, 21st of December, home. No entries here. I must have been recovering. And we're back. And uh, thanks for reading that piece of diary, Steve. Um, oh. <laughs> I never could have managed it without you, Anthony. <laughs> this is going to run for a bit now. Um, um, <laughs> so um, I guess the first thing I need to ask you about with that is, um, and you said to me off mic, uh, I know I referred to the fact in the diary I wasn't, quite really well but actually you were really really ill weren't you that was actually a proper not well uh, yeah I was I was struggling right through this that did come back to me reading it um you know I did I, I did that it just came back to me how, how how unwell I was um for quite a lot of those shows and particularly the Aylesbury one I remember being in the bell in the bell inn at Aylesbury um with the girl with no knickers on. Um, in um, I wasn't with her. She just happened to be there. So it, it, it's hard to forget that. Um, some things you just can't unsee. <laughs> Something. You said, do I ever have flashbacks? Well, yes, just now and again. Um, but, um, yeah, just feeling desperately ill. And, and I remember thinking I'll go upstairs and have a bath and... And you know, opening the taps and all this black stuff coming out the taps. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh no! All I want is a brother feels so rotten. Um, and uh, 
and that whole gig, you know, going on stage and, and it all just not being quite real because I was, I was just full of, I think I got flu and I was just, you know, not quite on the planet. And every day, every morning I would haul myself out of bed feeling like hell and into a minibus and just, you know, I'd just veg, veg out in a minibus for however many hours it took to get us to wherever we were going next and then back to bed again and just, just trying to to have enough left in the tank to do a show every night was a struggle. Never mind. But that that then explains a little bit of the... the the fact that you weren't overly knocked out by Glasgow that on that leg of the tour? I think we must have rocked up. I don't, again, I don't remember it perfectly, but I think we must have arrived probably late late in the afternoon. It would be December. It would be dark or very nearly dark. And, you know, back in those days, maybe even more so than now, Glasgow was pretty filthy and pretty run down. And just, and I wasn't in the, the kind of mood where I could shine a good light on it in my head. Um, and so I, I was a bit grumpy. I did feel the need to apologise to Glasgow later for those comments. But it, was, it had as much to do with me and the eyes that I was looking at Glasgow mm. through at the time. I I have a theory that I think there, there are only three great, well, I think there are four great northern cities. Uh, which means I'm going to offend a load of people now, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> and I think the four great... Well, they do take offence easily. <laughs> yeah, well, well, they, well, they do. And I think the they four do. great northern cities, because I think they all have a lot in common, uh, <laughs> are Glasgow, Liverpool, Newcastle and Sheffield. And I think it's something to do with the manufacturing that are in those particular spaces. And I think they're all very proud cities. I thought they've got great sense of community. Um, but I think they all wear their scars very much... Um, you know, um, they, they, they've never tried to transform themselves. I think places like Manchester and Leeds have tried to transform themselves a little bit from the past, but I think the other right. four have always been, have always stuck with, you know, their their, their history and been very proud of, of, of where they came from. Uh, and I, But all of them have an element of however much you like them. And I love all four of those cities. I've lived, I've lived in, you know, lived in Newcastle, been around Sheffield most of my life, spent a lot of time in Glasgow. Um but they are still a bit grim. They're, you know, they are very much scarred by what they've been through. So I can, I can see that, uh, and I can see how you make the analogy with Liverpool as well. Yeah, I think m- maybe I would even pull out Liverpool and Glasgow from your list as, as being real one-offs. Mm. You know, there's, there's, there really isn't a city on earth like Liverpool in. in in the sense that I think it's partly the accent, the spoken accent, the kind of characters you run into are kind of, they're severely Liverpoolian, mm. you know, and couldn't be from anywhere else at all. And I think the same is true of Glasgow. The, mm. the, the, you know, the, the, the characters you run into in Glasgow and the accent and the whole thing, it's just so there's an essence of the city in 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 the human beings that are there that that is so intense, maybe more so in my opinion than even than even than Newcastle and Sheffield. I think Liverpool and and Glasgow are extremes, you know, and that they, they, I mean, I, I I I took my I took when Sophie was little, 
uh, we were working at uh, Park Street in Liverpool and um, my, my ex-wife, I don't, I don't know if Niall was born at that point, but, but Dizzy and me and Sophie were in the Pizza Express in Liverpool and this old fellow was, uh, he, caught, he caught Sophie's eye and she was only about, you know, six or seven or something. And she was terribly well spoken because she'd grown up in Windsor, unlike me. And uh, you're all right, little gal. You're you're a lovely little gal, aren't you? Enjoying your pizza, love? And she said, "Yes, thank you. Yes, it's lovely. Thank you." And he <laughs> and he said, uh, "Oh, you don't sound like you're from round here. Where are you from?" And she went, "Oh, uh, we're from uh, Englefield Green. It's in England." And she thought she was on another planet, you know. She 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 thought she was in a different country, and and I think I think that sort of sums up Liverpool and Glasgow that they're a country all of their own. There we have it. Shared love for both places. We've got loads of time for both places. Um, yeah, spent spent a lot of time in both. There's there's only one bit to wrap up really from the diary this week um, because it takes us back to Jonathan. Um, losing cars, <laughs> and 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 because you were telling me, and it's alluded to in the diary, um, about your first wife and how she got herself around London. This is true. It's absolutely true. She used she used if she if she had she didn't really like driving to London, um, but whenever she had to to come and meet me, she would go to St Paul's Cathedral. And then confident that she'd arrived at St Paul's and must therefore be in London, she would she would work her way to wherever I was at from St Paul's, which rarely, well, I don't think ever made any sense because we lived in Windsor. So she'd drive from Windsor to St Paul's and then think, well, where is he? Oh, he's in Hampstead or, oh, he's in Islington or he's in... Um, Where's the town and country? Where's that? That's just north of Camden, isn't mm, it? Camden, yeah. I mean, none of these places are anywhere near <laughs> She'd go to St Paul's first and then confident in the knowledge that she must be in London. Didn't would, trust would head. Didn't trust any of the other landmarks then. <laughs> the Elephant and Castle wasn't that was it. That could still have been Reading or something. She couldn't have found the Elephant and Castle. It wasn't high enough. Didn't look enough like a large church. Um, so she'd go there, you know, and then and then and then she'd head to wherever I actually was. And in the in the case of in the case of the part of the diary I was reading, there we we'd done the town and country club, as as it was known back then. Uh, changed its name to something I can't even think of now because no. uh, it's been a while since. What's it called that gig now? I don't know. You've got me thinking oh, yeah. now. It didn't become It'll an O two, did it? it? The forum. It became the forum. forum. Yeah. Uh, in Kentish Town. Uh, and I've only played there about 15 <laughs> times, so why would I remember its name? Um, but it used to be called the, the, the Town and Country Club. And we we were finishing that tour there. We were all staying at the um, Holiday Inn, I think, in, in, in West Ham, no, in Hampstead. Um and she'd gone to St Paul's and then driven there and then ended up up the Finchley Road <laughs> and just given up. And so she'd just 
got out of the car, parked it, hailed a cab and said, take me to the Holiday Inn in Hampstead. <laughs> and that was her way of arriving. So so I'd got, you know, I'd, I'd got a show to do. I was already ill, a fellow hell. Uh, we'd arranged a babysitter at the hotel as well because I think she had Niall with her. There was another babysitter in Windsor looking after Sophie. Um, so we'd hired this babysitter the hotel and then then we'd got into a ta- another taxi and gone to the gig i'd played a show then i'd done the after show drinks end of tour do then i'd done all the pictures and the autographs then because of the end of the tour i had to gather all my belongings together they weren't going back on a tour bus we were going home so I'd got, I think I'd got a suitcase and two black bin liners full of washing. And having just played, having just played to a sold out show, we, I was then stood on the corner outside the gig, trying to get a taxi with two bin liners, um, a suitcase, and an eccentric wife. Um, whilst people were coming up, going. Oh, you're right, Steve. What's in the bin liners, mate? You know, great gig, fantastic. Can I have your autograph? You know, can I have my, my picture taken with you? And he's thinking, oh Lord, you'd have thought, you'd have thought that our manager might have at least sorted us out in the car. But um, anyway, he never used to. You know, it was far too expensive. And um, so eventually, we got a, we then, we then got a car which i had to drive i think i then had to give him instructions can you just drive up and down the finchley road please until we see our car because i didn't know where she'd put it she didn't know where she'd put it finchley road's a bloody long road so i think we were driving up and down finchley road at dead of night until we spotted our car probably covered in parking tickets and christ knows what and then drove that then 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 she drove that back to the hotel where we had to pay the babysitter i had to pack the rest of my belongings pay my expenses check out drive to windsor pay the babysitter in windsor drive her home which i did uh, and then drive back home so that i could go to bed so i mean that was a day that was a day and and Confident in the knowledge that I had exactly a day and a half to do my Christmas shopping mm. on the end of it, you know. So it was an intense part of my life. <laughs> I couldn't do it now. I couldn't do it now. I love how you're describing your wife as eccentric. <laughs> I think I drove her to it to a degree. Only because I'm sure there are there are different bars for eccentricity, <laughs> and if and if she she's got over that one in your in your head, then from a self-professed big shirt wearing Byron follower, then yeah. uh, yes. Well, I think <laughs> I think we'll leave it there for chapter fifteen, uh, yeah. which which means actually next week we'll get Christmas, won't we? Yes. Yes, I, I, I was amazed that you even put an entry in there for Christmas Day. I was very dedicated to that diary at that point. You mentioned last week that you'd still got your sleigh bells that you'd picked up, so maybe you could dig out your sleigh bells for uh, for some extra sound effects on next week's pod. Mm-hmm. 
We ought to perhaps try yeah. and. Uh, well, well, they're, they're at the they're at the racket club. I'll mm. I'd have to go in, but I might be going in there because I've got to collect a pallet. Because Lynetta's taken to making pallet furniture at the moment. In fact, we spent most of yesterday afternoon with electric sanders okay. in the garden, okay. sanding down pallets. And I've got to go and get another one. So while I'm there, I should grab the sleigh grab bells. Grab the sleigh bells. I'll, I'll write your it on the arm of my hand. Right, okay. <laughs> so there's going to be you, the 47 that go everywhere with you, with your kind of aura um, in the oh, car, yeah, yeah. and your pallet, and your sleigh bells. <laughs> That's what I was told, man. Right, okay. Uh, talking about things you can't unsee, but there we are. Right, well, we need to nip off because we've got a we've got an odds and sodcast to record as well for the for the for the purple people. So we're uh, going to go straight out of this uh, right. and record that odds and sodcast. They might even get the um, the the no the no pants story. <laughs> that might end up in there. I'm going to spill the beans. Okay, well, there you are. If you need any kind of encouragement to <laughs> to, to support the show, then maybe maybe Steve's yeah. no knickers stories will do it for you. The Vagina Diaries. The Vagina Diaries. Yeah. Uh, that's been you. No, it's monologues, wasn't it? We, can have, we probably yes, could have diaries. <laughs> Let's keep that to a minimum. We'll keep that to ourselves. Um, take care, everybody. Thanks for thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting, and uh, and we'll see you next week. And if you're driving home tonight, ladies and gentlemen, wear your pants. Thank you, Sam Domingo and Kurt Van Overen. Thank you. Linda Coast and Gary Keating Thank you Sally Sturman and Juliet Packham and Thank you Tom Duffy and Katerina Smetberg Yara Simpson Manuel Kloiber Leslie Marrows And Neil Adams Thank you Julie Griffiths And Chris Barnett Thank you, Jerry and Simon McQueenie. And Rich Tipper, that's a name for a millionaire. Richard Broadley and Michael Jones and Lee Burridge. And Wilmore King and Susan Harrington. Philip Ashcroft, Matthias Spetsman, 
Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production. <laughs>